Thank you, John. Well, good morning again. Good to be with you on this beautiful day. We're continuing our study that we started last week in the book of Jonah, and we subtitled it, Fully Engaged in God's Mission. And so the book of Jonah addresses, as you know, a particular problem about missions, and that is hesitancy in missions. I mean, we all know the story about this hesitant prophet, Jonah. He was called to preach to the city of Nineveh, but instead of going to preach, he flees from the Lord in the opposite direction. He gets captured by a fish and gets resent on the mission. And then he goes and he preaches uh, to the city with great success, as we'll learn today. But then later on, he's upset about the success. And eventually, God would teach Jonah, though, about his purposes and mercy uh, that are much bigger than Jonah thought. And so the book of Jonah focuses on also how this hesitancy develops out of a poor theology. And the people of God in his day had a poor theology. They had a particular theological problem, which has plagued um, the people of God always. And, and so the book addresses that. And that problem is what we call spiritual myopia or nearsightedness. Um, it's often expressed in a church in smug theology. It's thinking in such a way that seeks to limit God's blessings to just ourselves, that God's job really is to bless us, uh, only us, that He has to bless us, that He should bless us because we're really the most important people to Him. And we close our, the church can close its eyes to the world and God's purposes uh, for mercy in the world and forsake, really end up forsaking our missionary calling as a church. And so we want to simply just enjoy the grace of God, but keep it to ourselves. And so this is a problem of the people of God in Jonah's time, obviously a problem that Jonah had as well, but God in compassionate but yet very direct correction um, brings this to our attention through this story and through this book in His Word. And that truth is that God is absolutely free to bestow His mercy and His compassion on the world however He chooses to do so. And our desire should be to see God's display of mercy on others and work toward seeing that purpose accomplished. So it's really not very difficult when we read the book of Jonah from a New Testament perspective and the fullness of the times and the history of redemption when Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, has come into the world and has uh, and offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin and raised from the dead for our justification for those of us who believe Him. It's not that hard to see that the application is we're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel to the very ends of the earth, to all the peoples, that they might worship Him and come to experience the mercy of salvation. Well, through God's dealings with Jonah, God is teaching His church the very same lesson that He was teaching then, is that God's desire for the salvation of the world is to be our desire, and we're to dedicate ourselves to accomplishing His plan for salvation. So in chapter 3 today, the outline is pretty simple because we see how God does this uh, in three simple steps, really, in verses 1 through 5, we see how God raises up His people, in our story, particularly Jonah, to proclaim His message to people He's already decided that He's concerned about. And we see that in verses 1 to 4. And then in verses 5 to 9, at the same time that God is doing that, He's also preparing those people to receive His messengers that He's going to be sending and the message that they're going to be proclaiming. And then finally in verse 10, we see that God bestows His mercy upon them when they accept His message that comes from His messengers. 
So let's pray, and we'll begin this morning looking at Jonah chapter 3. Well, Lord God, we are so thankful that you have shown your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And we can say that each of us individually, that we are so thankful that you, Lord Jesus, have given yourself a sacrifice for our sins. And that you've opened our eyes as well to your purposes to save others around the world. And we want to be a part of your plan, even more so than we have up to this day. That we can be a part and we can see your work of salvation in others' lives. And we pray this morning that you would guide us as we look into your word and we ask that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, uh, what you have written uh, through your prophet. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last Sunday we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and in chapter 1 we saw that um, the truth is is that often God will send His people one way, but then they'll go another way. And in chapter 2 we learn that God will often rescue His people from the rebellion and bring them to the point where they'll repent, be thankful, and be ready for what it is He would have them to do. And so this leads us to chapter 3, where we see that God uses His church to bestow His compassion on the nations. And so turn in your Bibles to chapter 3 of Jonah, and we will learn what it means to dedicate ourselves to the accomplishment of His salvation plans. And so we're going to read the, and experience the story just like we did last week as we go through the passage itself. So don't look ahead, and let's just follow along as the story proceeds and unfolds for us. So first we see that God raises up His people to proclaim His message to others that He is concerned about. Of course, in our storyline, it's very simple. He's raising up Jonah to go speak to the Ninevites that God is concerned about. And very beginning of of chapter 3, the Lord God recommissions Jonah in verses 1 to 2. So he just got spit up out of the fish's mouth in the story. We don't know how much later this is than that chapter 3 begins. But then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so, after the experiences of chapter 1, and then chapter 2 being in the belly of the fish, Jonah's ready to obey. And at some time, he receives this second call or this commission from the Lord, and notice the exact repetition from chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same commission. It's the story starts over, as though chapters 1 and 2 were to no effect. Actually, it was Jonah's flight from God that was to no effect. And so this is Jonah's second chance, and God's will will be done. So Jonah may as well just get on with it. He has really no choice but to obey God, and the Lord God would give him the words to preach to the Ninevites. Now notice in the text it says that Jonah was to preach God's words not his own words, and he would, he would, pre- he would preach what God told him to say. In other words, you sort of read the story and you realize, well, God's keeping Jonah on a, on a short leash at this point in the story. And so Jonah then arises and he obediently goes to preach to the Nineveh. There's no travel log on his journey. He just ends up in Nineveh in our story and he starts preaching. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. 
So again, we're told that Nineveh is a great city. We've already been told that in the storyline, meaning that it's a city of great importance to God. It's, a, it's also a great city in the sense it's a good size for a city at that time. But the significant point is that it's great city to God. He has great plans for mercy upon the people of that city. Now, Nineveh was literally, here it says in our text, it's a three-day city. It's a certain type of a city. It's a three-day city. And it could mean that it takes three days to walk across the city, some would surmise, but the city was only three miles across, so at its greatest size. But So some have thought that, well, maybe it's three days to walk across the whole district of that the city surrounds it, which would be 30 to 60 miles, but it doesn't seem like that's what's really in view here. And so some see it as an idiomatic expression, that in other words, it's such a great city, you'd want to spend three days there. It would take you three days to do business. Some think it's a diplomatic phrase, that it takes you a whole day to get in there and give all the gifts that you need to give, and day to do your business, and then a day to finally leave and say your goodbyes properly. It doesn't really matter a whole lot, other than, simply speaking, it took Jonah, really, three, it would be a three-day business trip, um, in a word, to conduct and to walk his business in the city. That's how great of a city it was. And so Jonah goes out to preach on his first day, right into the heart of the city, and he proclaims what the Lord tells him. And we don't have the whole thing. We just have a summary of what he says. And that summary is, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown or overturned. Now, 40 days would be a typical time of waiting uh, and testing. Uh, The people of Nineveh are being warned by God through his prophet Jonah. They had 40 days to repent of their wickedness or the city would be destroyed. Now, it's interesting, though, as you read this passage, you can't really see it in English, but, but the word for overturned here in the Hebrew is purposefully ambiguous. I mean, it could be destruction, but it also has this sort of irony to it of turning over, that it's a way of saying that God has good intentions for this city. It's the author's style to help us anticipate as we're reading the story that something different might be happening than we are expecting as we read, that God might have purposes for the Ninevites that aren't quite clear yet. And we know, because we know the story, what God's going to do for the Ninevites. He's going to literally, well, He's going to turn them upside down figuratively in repentance and then grant them His mercy. That's what He's going to do. But when we get to this point in the story, too, we have a few other questions that are probably on our minds. We're wondering... You know, what was Jonah really expecting at the time on day one when he went out preaching his message? Was he expecting that he's going to have to do this for 40 days in a row? That he's going to go out there and preach judgment and then at the end of 40 days, God's going to judge him? Or is he thinking that he's going to go out every day for 40 days and he's going to be preaching as judgment and then God is going to grant them repentance and then show his mercy? You sort of wonder, is he still really desiring what he said he was desiring when he was in the belly of the fish? And he expresses his repentance and his thankfulness to God and how ready he is to go do God's will. We're also wondering too, like why would the people of Nineveh listen to a foreign prophet from a foreign god anyway? I mean, why would they even do that? And I think there's a hint in some of the history that's going on at the moment in the 8th century B.C. It was a really troublesome time for the empire of Assyria. There were military problems they were suffering. They were suffering from plagues. Um, A lot of rebellions were taking place. Uh, There were a series of famines that they had to deal with. And there was actually a, a solar eclipse that was very frightening to them. 
And so we read that, or we understand those types of things, well, that's because God's just getting them ready for Jonah. And so Asherdan III would have been the king, or maybe some, some lesser significant king at the time of Jonah, we don't know for sure, but they would be eager to listen to any prophet who would come and that could help in the situation. That's how pagans see gods. That's how they see prophets. And so they would welcome him because of this reason, but ultimately the people of Nineveh would listen to Jonah because God has been preparing them to listen to Jonah. You see, some of the lessons there, I think, are pretty obvious to us is that you, know, you never know what's going on in people's lives. We only see what's going on on the outside and what they want to see, but we never know really what's going on. What is God perhaps orchestrating in people's lives and how He might be preparing them for His message that might even come through one of us? Now, we know that the book of Jonah is a, is a big book of instruction from him after he learned the big lesson after chapter 4 is over. But I think even here, there's a lot of advice that is given really in just the first four verses for us. First of all, you know, God has appointed us to proclaim His salvation message. I mean, at worst, we should just obey God and get on with it and proclaim His message because He's going to get it done. Yet in reality, we should have a much larger vision and a glorious vision of what we're called to do, to proclaim God's message and to watch Him do His will when we proclaim the message of salvation to people. It's thrilling to be a part of it. Second of all, we should know that God has particular plans for particular people around the world. I mean, in our storyline, we already know what they are. It's very simple. He has very specific plans for the Ninevites at this particular time to avoid destruction of their city. But in the fullness of time in which we live, in the age of the coming of the Messiah and the Spirit and the, and the, and the call to mission upon the church, you know, we know that God's purposes for the nations, for the people groups of the world, is that they would hear about Jesus Christ and that they would put their faith in Him. And God would bring, He's already said He would bring many to salvation from all the peoples of the world and He would grant them a much greater mercy and that would be the mercy of salvation. In fact, the Apostle John even writes for us these well-loved words by us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. So may God cause us to see these glorious realities of being raised up to proclaim the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what it's part, that's the, one of the most glorious things about being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. God's desire is for the salvation of the world, and that is to be our desire, and we're to dedicate ourselves to the accomplishment of His purposes. Well, next we see, not only has He raised up Jonah to go speak to these people He has particular plans for, but, he sees that, but we see that he's preparing these people that he's chosen to receive the message. He's preparing them for Jonah and the message that would come. And so we, then we read in verse 5 that the people of, Nonah, of, of, the people of Nineveh believe and repent at Jonah's preaching. So Jonah goes into the city, says, You have 40 days, Nineveh shall be overturned. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
So God had really prepared the Ninevites. I mean, they received Jonah as a true prophet of God, speaking the true words of God, and immediately, on day one, they believe in God. They're so eager to hear that Jonah can barely have time to declare the whole message that he was sent to do, and the whole city puts on sackcloth uh, as a sign of repentance and, and undergoes a fast. I mean, certainly Jonah didn't expect this response. Uh, neither do we as we're reading the story. But it couldn't be you know, too far from the truth perhaps to say that mass repentance was probably Jonah's greatest fear. At least at the time, but of course now as he's telling the story to us, it's one of his greatest joys. It's to report to us, you'll never believe what happened in Nineveh. And so surely this should express our, our, our desires also for our city, our country, our world. And it's our hope, and this passage elicits hope from us that this can be the case as we proclaim the gospel. That God will accomplish His great purposes of salvation through our proclamation. That should be encouraging to us to go speak to people about Jesus and be amazed at God's work when He converts them. And yes, it's very important to understand that Mass conversion is a highly unusual work of God, and most often, He doesn't work that way. He works in smaller groups of people that you share with, even one-on-one when you share with people. Well, then we find out in verse 6 that even the king of Nineveh believes and repents at Jonah's preaching. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes." So the king, we don't know if he heard Jonah in person or if he just heard the message that Jonah was preaching. It's not clear. But either way, of course, the king is worth mentioning because he's the representative of the people of Nineveh. And notice the way the story's told and the four verbs attached here to the king. The king arose, he stood up, he laid aside, he covered himself, and he sat. These emphasize the astonishment that we're supposed to have at the extent of what God is doing. This is the king of Nineveh, the king of Assyria, doing this, you realize. And in his repentance, he makes his public ritual of self-humiliation as an example. And again, the king here could be Ashurdan III or some lesser ones. We don't know for sure. But, you know, we don't at this point have some official Assyrian record of this event, which would be no surprise. I mean, what a humiliating thing. And to have to do this for a foreign god. And also, it's important to realize that this period of repentance was only for a limited time. And it would unlikely be the case that they are embracing Yahweh as the one true God. They're not doing that. So then the king and his nobles decree seeking the Lord God for mercy, in verses 7 to 9. It says, And he issued a proclamation and published through, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish." The king, along with his nobles, they require that the whole city seek the favor of Jonah's God, of Yahweh. And all the people and all the domesticated animals are to undergo a strict fast, no food or water, 
that they are to express their repentance by being covered in sackcloth, and they're to pray earnestly to God, this God, for mercy, and they're to reform their lives, to stop their wickedness and their violence and turn away from their evil ways. And this was in order that they might move this God to turn and relent and withdraw his anger so they wouldn't perish because the prophet has been saying they would. They're serious about their belief in Jonah's message and showing repentance toward Yahweh. Now, the involvement of the animals in this, to us, at least in the first two activities that are listed here, appears really strange to us, but it fits the culture of the time. I mean, yes, it could be hyperbole, but it's probably literally true that the animals were involved, and it signifies just the urgency of the people to try to turn the mind of this God to, to, to relent. And, and, the, and it also symbolizes the severity of the situation because, you know, whatever happens to the people is going to happen to their livestock as well, whether it's judgment or mercy. And notice their question in verse 9, who knows? Who knows whether God will be merciful or not? I mean, ultimately, it's God's decision. And we know that God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. That's part of the point of mercy. The hope is that by their change in their behavior from evil to good and their crying out to Him that God would change and show pity toward them. And often God does this. I mean, there are numerous examples in Israel's history, for example. I mean, their history could be told as really a history of God's patience and a history of God's restoration. Even from our own lives, I'm sure we have examples uh, where God has led us to repentance um, and granted us forgiveness and and spared us from judgment that we were really expecting. You know, it's really interesting to note, though, this is part of the purpose of the book of Jonah, is that at this time in the history of Israel, they would not repent. They were not repenting, repeatedly being told. But yet here it is, Nineveh in one day repents. And consequently, God would judge Israel by these Assyrians. In 722 B.C., not much longer than after this event, it would be game over for the northern kingdom of Israel, never to be reconstructed again. Now, the repentance of Nineveh is forever a symbol of true and serious repentance. I mean, if you want to know what repentance looks like, you can just read Jonah chapter 3. If you want to know what it looks like for yourself or in other people's lives, we look to Nineveh. And as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, that's the kind of response we want to see in our hearers. We want to see a serious remorse over sin and a desire to change that. And we want to see that all their hope is put in Jesus Christ because they realize they can't save themselves even by their reform. We want to see people believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that it was the propitiation of, and the appeasement of God's wrath for sin, and that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we want to see people see that this applies to them. And we want to see in them a relief that comes when God grants salvation, that their sin burden is lifted, that they understand Jesus carries it all. That's what we want to see. You know, Jesus himself, in speaking about himself, as is recorded in Matthew 12, he references this story 
He says, the men, of, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here and he's talking about himself. I'm here. The Christ and the gospel is here. The message of full salvation. See, this true faith, this true repentance is what we're looking for when we explain to people the gospel and we explain to them what faith looks like and what repentance looks like. This is what we're looking for and something that God works in people, not something that people manufacture for themselves to put on some kind of a show for God. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised when it happens because, or overly skeptical, because God's orchestrating the whole event. He's sending us to tell people about Himself. He's preparing people to hear the message. We're not looking for results from people themselves, but we're looking for results that show that God has been preparing people to respond to the gospel. So may God remind us that He has prepared people. He has prepared them. That should be compelling and motivating, you know, because it just comes down to this. If we actually tell people, guess what? They'll believe. God's desire is for the salvation of the world, and that is to be our desire. And we're supposed to be dedicating ourselves to that purpose. And may we implore people for true faith and true repentance when we explain to them the gospel and expect God to do amazing things as He saves His people around the world He's prepared. And so then we finally come to the end of the story at this point where God bestows His mercy upon the Ninevites and he, they accept the message, message and the messenger. And so 10a and 10b is the, very simple. The Lord God observes their repentance in 10a. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, then part B, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Very simple outline. God observed the Ninevites fasting, their prayers, sackcloth, their behavior. This, this means that God took notice of their serious response to his message of warning. Now, it's really important to understand that the Ninevites did not become worshipers of Yahweh. They have simply heeded the warning that came from him through Jonah, and they sought his mercy in repentance by changing their behaviors. God is concerned for people he made and He's concerned for governing his world the way he wants to, even when the issue is not a full, true, deep spiritual salvation. And, and here, the issue for the Ninevites is avoiding destruction of their city. In fact, if you were to look, you could turn there if you want, but in Jeremiah 18, you just write it down, you can look it up later, but Jeremiah 18, we can observe, for example, how the Lord God does deal with nations. So starting in verse 5, it says, In the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, 
then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back, each of you from his evil way, and reform your ways and your deeds. You know, and we can observe how God deals with nations even now. All you got to do is look. We can observe how God has dealt with nations in the past. All you got to do is read your history books, and you can see what God's been doing. So it's unlikely, too, in the storyline that God will wait 40 days, especially with this water fast, to confirm His compassion to them. He probably sent another special message through Jonah that He would spare them in their city. Perhaps that would have been on day two or day three. But nevertheless, when that 40-day mark came, I'm sure they were greatly relieved that God had not destroyed their city. The Lord had compassion. He relents on them. He doesn't destroy them. He had pity on the Ninevites. He didn't destroy them like He said He would. He spared the people from a calamity and the punishment for their evil. He gave them a warning, opportunity to repent, and after their repentance satisfied Him, He relented. Again, this is only temporary, for later generations would return to their evil ways in Assyria pretty quickly. In fact, God would send another prophet, Nahum, in 630 B.C., and pronounce judgment without mercy. And in 612 B.C., it happened. Nineveh would fall to the Babylonians. Nevertheless, the purpose of sending his prophet is now fulfilled. I mean, we might wonder if, if that's the whole thing, then what's the point? I mean, just to spare the city in this one little, you know, simple 40-day period of time. It's more so to teach Jonah and the people of God about himself and his ways and his mercies, that he's absolutely free to do what he wants. And he can bestow his compassion and express his mercy however he chooses to do so. Do we believe that? And we also wonder, you know, why even record this message? Because it's so limited in historical significance, it seems. And it's so limited in any kind of a lasting result. I mean, it didn't really last that long. And it doesn't seem to have any, like, eternal significance or scope to it. Well, again, we're supposed to look beyond. To look beyond, and what is really the purpose of the book of Jonah? This little episode of God's governance of nations is used as an example of His compassion and His mercy. God takes pleasure in displaying His mercy in spiritual salvation, of course. But you know, God also takes pleasure in just displaying His mercy in temporal ways. He enjoys doing both. God delights in displaying His mercy in many different forms. And furthermore, His mercy is shown in this temporal way, to Nineveh, to point to something, of course, much bigger than that, much more glorious, and that would be the mercy of salvation that comes. I mean, do we desire, is another good question, do we desire to and rejoice at God's mercy towards people, even when He doesn't save them? Because He expresses mercy in non-salvific ways, and of course we rejoice when He saves people, but what about it when God decides to be good to evil people? When God decides to be merciful to your enemy, can we rejoice at the mercy of God and He is freedom to do what He chooses? 
That's the question, of course, of the book, and that's what we get to in the next passage in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So you'd think Jonah would be so excited about what happened, but no, we read, this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God delights in mercy. We're to desire it too, even in non-salvation-oriented ways. And the Apostle Paul instructs similarly through Timothy when he says this in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We want God to display His mercy upon peoples and their societies and their leaders because we want a place for the gospel to flourish and to be able to be proclaimed. May God make us seek for people to accept the gospel message so that He can have mercy on their souls for an eternal salvation. Just go find them and tell them. God does desire the world to be saved, and it's our desire, should be His desire, and we should be dedicating ourselves to accomplishment of that purpose. So I hope we see the glory of God's plans from the book of Jonah, because they extend way beyond just ourselves. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, of Jesus Christ, it is said, He says, I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That was the purpose of Jesus' coming. And the purpose of our proclaiming is so that Jesus Christ will be glorified among all, whether or not they accept Him or not. And then to, they, they will, many will glorify Him because they do receive His mercy and accept the salvation message. So if you're interested in a progress report, I mean, so this comes out, you know, what is this, uh, 8th century B.C. So... Where are we now? Progress report on this. You know, there are places today, thankfully, we can get them. Um, one that you may or may not be familiar with, you can look it up later, is called joshuaproject.net. So joshuaproject.net. It's a wonderful site. There's tons of information on the site about the progress of the gospel, tons of ideas on how to be praying and how to be involved. And so you may or may not know, but according to you know, the Joshua Project, so there are 17,000 people groups in the world. 7,000 of them are unreached with the gospel, which makes up about 42% of the population. But anyway, I just encourage you to look it up. You can see where we are. And any particular part of the world, you can just click on that part and you can find all the people groups and all these statistics on the gospel and what's being done to, to bring the gospel to people. I hope we see the God's design as well from Jonah chapter 3 because it's the same design that gets expressed many places in Scripture is that first God raises up people to proclaim His message that He wants sent to a particular people while at the same time 
Secondly, he's working on those people, preparing the ones he's chosen to receive his message when it comes to them. And finally, step three, when the messenger shows up and he proclaims the message, God calls his people um, internally to himself and they become believers in Jesus Christ. And I hope we see that we as a church are called to be thoroughly engaged in this plan. I mean, this just isn't for other people, for other churches, it's for us. And there's no real reason when we get to this point, you know, in the story, especially as we look on it from New Testament eyes, we shouldn't be hesitant in our mission as a church. And, and there's every reason to be courageous to take the gospel to people. Now, if you struggle with the problem of missionary or mission hesitancy, whether it's across the world or whether it's even in your own neighborhood locally, you know, there are a few things I think that we can do that can help us overcome that hesitancy in our own souls if we sense it's there. And first of all, we can just remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ and remind ourselves of the very mercy of salvation we ourselves received. We can recount that day when God saved our soul. And review that and rehearse it to yourself and how valuable that is to know that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life with God. Second of all, we can look back at the book of Jonah, something else you can do in Nineveh, and, and think in terms not just of the, of the immediate piece of the story here, but look at the big picture of Jonah and the end glory, because you see, the story of Jonah is really about a bigger story. That's how we're supposed to read it. And then ask, third, the Lord God to increase your concern for the peoples of the world. And sometimes it's hard to be concerned about things we don't know much about, so we can pray for the Lord to increase your interest in what He's doing around the world and finding out that information and getting involved and ask God to increase your desire to be used by Him in bestowing His salvation mercies upon people by, by sharing the gospel with Him and pray for opportunities. You can ask God to reveal his, your missionary hesitancies and then remove them. He'll do it and maybe even share the gospel with somebody soon. Well, may Calvary Evangelical Free Church be used greatly by God uh, to bestow His compassion upon the nations and to be fully engaged in God's mission. So let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, may Your glory among all the peoples be proclaimed. We are so thankful that You have raised up just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to go to unfamiliar places, to people who've never heard, to share with them your glory and your greatness and the salvation that could be yours, theirs in your name. We also praise you, Lord Jesus, that you've saved our souls and made us your worshipers, and we know that you are gathering people from among all the peoples around the world to join in and to be a part of the family of God, and we're thankful to know about that, to be involved in it, to be praying for it, to be supporting it, to be involved in actually being the ones who speak the message of salvation to people. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to raise up proclaimers, to, that you would continue to prepare hearers, and that you would continue to bestow salvation. And we pray these things for your greater glory. Amen.